time of worship this morning, we can sing to you and pray together and fellowship and read your word and now look at your word together. I pray you would anoint me in preaching, give boldness and clarity, passion for your truth, open, open our hearts to receive it. Pray your spirit would apply it to us to think as we should and act as we should and speak as we should and um, live as we should to your glory. And Father, we, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. On November 3rd, 1969, Captain Charles Lee Carr of the United States Air Force, my father, a forward air controller, was awarded the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry for recent actions preventing their special forces from being overrun, using numerous airstrikes in close proximity to their position and saving lives of several of their people. The very next morning, November 4th, 1969, his plane was shot down over Quang Tri Province and he was killed. In a room this size, I'm sure there are many who have lost a spouse or a child or a sibling or a parent or friend who gave their life serving our country. I know for my mother and my sister and brother and I and our families, in the 51 and a half years since, we continue to miss them. But at the same time, we're proud to honor his service, his sacrifice for our country and our liberties. Romans 13, 7 says to pay honor to whom honor is due. And Memorial Day is a good thing. It's a good way to do that. Take time to remember those who've given their lives serving our country. USmemorialday.org tells us that this day of remembrance began with a general order by General John Logan, who at the time was the national commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. This order proclaimed the 30th of May, 1868, is designated for the purpose of strewing with flowers or otherwise decorating the graves of comrades who died in defense of their country during the late rebellion and whose bodies now lie in almost every city, village, and hamlet, churchyard in the land. Because the day was not an anniversary of a battle, it was simply named Decoration Day. On the first Decoration Day, 5,000 participants decorated the graves of 20,000 both Union and Confederate soldiers buried at Arlington Cemetery, while General James Garfield gave an historic speech. Five years later, New York was the first state to make it a, an ongoing every year holiday. By 1890, all the northern states had done so. The th southern states we're observing other different days to honor those who had died. And then following World War I, the entire nation began to observe, and not only those from the Civil War, but from all conflicts to honor those who had died in service to our country. Decoration Day, which became Memorial Day, was and is for the purpose of remembering and honoring military service people who've given their lives, fighting for unity, peace, and liberty. In our passage today, we're called to remember. And with 
no slight whatsoever to the great honor due those who've died serving our country. This is a call to remember a sacrifice that's even much greater and was made to create a much greater peace and unity and liberty. As believers were called to remember Christ, our peace, as his unified church, to remember our plight before Christ of separation, to remember our peace is Christ who creates unity, and to remember our privileges in Christ as his unified church to his glory. And I want to extend my introduction a little further to, to mention one particular avenue of application of this passage that's particularly relevant to our times. A, a year ago on this weekend, I had the privilege of preaching, coming right after the death of George Floyd. And so now here I am again a year later after the anniversary of that death. And in the intervening year, things have really only heightened or worsened, you might say, in terms of ethnic differences, conflicts, issues in our nation and even within our churches. And of course, I can't deal comprehensively with those issues, but this passage deals with hostility on an ethnic basis. I didn't arrive on this passage on that basis. I came here on Memorial Day. What do I preach? I love Ephesians. This passage is about remembering, and that's how I got back here in a passage I, I love and have been in before. But it speaks to this issue. And so the application I'd want to start with and, and primarily mention is that the Bible is where we are to go as Christians with any and every issue, including ethnic differences, including uh, racial injustice or um, the thoughts of that injustice or what's just the things going on in our country all should be brought to the Word of God. That's where as Christians, we, in fact, everyone should go there. But as Christians, God's opened our eyes that this is his very word. He has revealed this. It's without error. It's authoritative. Um, 2 Timothy 3, breathed out by God and profitable to teach us and train us and reprove us and correct us. And um, he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 10, we're to take every thought captive to obey Christ. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, it talks about uh, experience in, in and in this, in this discussion in our society, uh, many of those involved in it have a completely different worldview and a completely different basis on which they decide what is true. Groups like Black Lives Matter as a, as a group, um, social justice uh, as, a, as an academic field and those advocates of that, um, critical race theory, those, these types of things that are very much a part of all of this currently. They view experience as the determiner of truth, particularly experience as a member of an oppressed group. Now, not that there aren't oppressions that happen. In our very chapter we're in, speaks of our sin, and our sin causes great suffering upon others, including oppression. It's not, there's not reality to the problems. The problem is the way it's being addressed and the way it's being viewed and the way Christians sometimes get sucked into that because we care about justice. But biblical justice is that we come un, in line with Christ and the word of Christ and the law of Christ and live accordingly. And where we don't is where there's injustice. 
today the, the center of justice or injustice is inequity. Well, that's not a biblical concept. But I don't want to get too far off on that except to say, come to Scripture. Christians, we should go to Scripture to, to think through these things and then have discussions and have a basis upon which to seek to arrive at agreement uh, on these different issues should be the Word of God. And we shouldn't be governed by experience. So back to 2 Peter 1, Peter mentions his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration where he sees Christ in his glorified state. It's recorded in the Gospels. It's a true experience. He mentions it again there in 2 Peter. It actually happened. But then he goes on to say, we have something more sure, referring to the Word of God that's revealed not by man, but by God. And so when we're seeking to determine what is the truth, we come here. Not even our own experience, not even our own experience that's true, and not even our own experience that's true and recorded in divine scripture. It's still the scripture that is the determiner of truth, of how we should think and how we should live and what we should do and what we should say, including how we should relate to one another across ethnic lines. Well, the Bible does have much to say, and in very brief summary, racism, or really it should be ethnic partiality in biblical terms, is definitely a sin. It's a great sin. It's a wicked sin. Christians should forsake it. When Christ saves us, he takes it out of us. Um, and part of the basis of that, and why I say ethnic partiality, is because we're only one race. We're the race of Adam. We're all created equally in the image of God. In the one man, Adam, and then Eve, and we're all descended from them accordingly. We share in that dignity as the human race. We also share in the sin of Adam and the fall of the human race into sin, and we're equally all sinners, the Bible says. Equally all in need of Christ, as described in the first three chapters of Romans so thoroughly. And those who come to faith in Christ are equally saved by his grace. All can come. God does not show partiality based on ethnicity. The gospel goes out to all, and all who come are saved. In fact, he promises in Revelation that around his throne in glory will be some from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, with no more hostility, but unity among all ethnicities. The Bible has much to say, and we don't have time to go into more detail, but this passage is one of the places that it has much to say. It's an incredible passage overall, and including the important truth that as believers, we're united in Christ across ethnic lines for his glory, and we should live like it. Now, as we, as we make this societal application as believers, we should not forget that every time we come to the word of God, he has applications for us personally and for each individual church, and we should pray that he that we not get lost in this and say, yeah, all you out there, we should, you. We should, both in this area and in all areas of our lives related to this passage and all passages, say, God, show me the truth, apply it to my heart, work in me both to will and to do for your good pleasure. So let's dive in. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, our first point, remember our plight before Christ of separation. In ourselves, we are separated from God and from others, in particular from God's people. <clears throat> we are to remember. Verse 11 begins, therefore, remember. It's 
what he's calling us to do in this passage. And he's going to do a lot of detail of what we're to remember, some wonderful, amazing truths of what he does, what Christ does. But he starts with remember these things. And therefore points back to the context of what he's about to go into. The first 10 verses of chapter 2 describe our great salvation. In fact, all the way to chapter 1, it describes God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, their work in saving a people for themselves, us as Christians, all to, to his glory. And in light of this glorious salvation God has given by grace through faith in Christ, remember that we, apart from Christ, have no peace. We're not right with God. We're spiritually dead in sin. We're under God's wrath. We're separated from him and his people. And to remember is important to keep us humble, to keep us dependent on the Lord, thankful, worshipful, and concerned for others around us. We, 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 if we remember what we've been brought from and what Christ did to save us, we'll want to tell others that good news and point them to him as well. In verse 11, we see the hostility and lack of peace between Jew and Gentile. Verse 11 says, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Now it doesn't say hostility there, although later it's going to speak of enmity, hostility in this passage. But it's implied with a sense, there's a sense of sarcasm here as Paul is writing this. That circumcision is something God gave to the Jewish people, but they had turned it into something different. God had given it to them as a sign of them being his distinct people. He had chosen the Jews, choosing Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, um, that they would be a nation through whom he would send his Messiah and through whom he would send his word, and that they would be priests to the other nations. They would be an, an avenue of witness to all the other people's uh, of the earth. But however, Israel turned this distinction into a source of pride, to a source of hatred and, and disdain for the other peoples of the earth, rather than a place of humility and love. Israel preferred to condemn the Gentiles rather than to witness to them and point them to Christ. John MacArthur shares a, a story from ancient rabbinic literature of a a rabbi who had a Gentile woman come to him, came to his door, said, I know your God is the true God. I want to draw near to him. I want to become a, a Jewish and worship him. And he is said to have said, no, you cannot draw near and slam the door in her face. They had completely, out of pride, uh, misused this gift, these gifts God had given to them. May we not fall into the same. Jonathan Edwards preached that scorn and contempt of others is an effect of pride. There are times as, as believers to be faithful to Christ, to be faithful to his word and to the truth, we have to divide from others. But it should never be in pride. It should always be humbly. It should always be, as far as it depends on us, we would remain at peace, but we just have to be true to the Lord and his word. It should be with a, a heart to share the blessing of God. With, with others. We should be certain that as believers, we don't fall into that pride and, and begin to divide on ethnic differences or economic differences or racial differences or, or these categories of the Bible would not have us divide over. Without Christ, 
hostile divisions between people arise, separating them from one another. We must remember that without Christ, we have the need for temporal peace to be, to be brought back into unity. Much more importantly, we have a spiritual need for peace as well. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> remember that you were at that time separated or separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. With the help of Martin Lloyd-Jones and others, this passage, this verse kind of lays out five aspects of the need for spiritual peace that we have. First, the first aspect is until Christ is our peace, we are separated from him, from Christ. Lloyd-Jones rightly says, there's nothing more terrible that can be said about anybody than this, to be separated from Christ. The flip side of that is nothing more wonderful that can be said than that we're united with Christ, we're in Christ. And it's one or the other. It can't be both, it can't be in between. We are either in Christ or we are separated from Christ. And which determines our eternal destiny. So which are you? Where, where are you? Are you in Christ or are you separate from Christ? The Bible calls us to examine ourselves to be certain we're in the faith, that we are in Christ. It, it doesn't do so in places like 2 Corinthians 13 to cause us to live a life of constant uncertainty or doubt some churches have taught that through the years, but that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible calls us to examine ourselves that on the basis, the solid basis of the Word of God, to be in a normal state as a Christian of assurance, of knowing we're, we belong to the Lord, that we're in Christ, that we are His. And how do we examine ourselves? Well, be guided by the Word of God, not by our feelings. It's possible to feel very saved and secure in the Lord and not be. And it's possible to be very saved, but feel insecure. Go to the Word of God and let His Word guide us in, in, in a sound uh, sense of assurance. Starting with, what does the Bible say about how to be in Christ to begin with? And have we done so? Have we repented of our sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ alone in His saving work to save us? That's the starting point. If not, then we should not be assured. If we have, then we should be assured. But what about if we have and then we're uncertain? Well, the Bible speaks of, of how to find assurance as well. A couple of key places. One was Romans chapter 8 where it speaks of the Spirit of God testifying to our spirit that we are God's children, that we do belong to Him and cry from our heart, Abba, Father. The other place is in uh, 1 John five thirteen, where at the end of his letter, John says, I've written these things that you may know. Know for certain that you have eternal life. What things? Well, his letter describes the work of God in us showing, manifesting out, bearing fruit. Do we see that? And as we do, we can fall, find assurance in that. Not our work, but God's work in us. To be separate from Christ is a horrible thing. If you are, flee to Christ. Come to Christ in faith. And the, and the other four aspects are just further descriptions of how terrible this is. So secondly, without Christ, 
we are alienated from God's people. Gentiles as a whole were alienated from God's chosen nation, from the commonwealth of Israel. And by application, Jews and Gentiles, anyone without Christ, are alienated from God's people, from those who have been saved by God's grace. Are you outside of God's people? Or do you love God's people? There are great blessings of being united with God's people. Things like corporate worship, being able to come and, and hear preaching and teaching of the Word of God and, and discipling one another and equipping one another and encouraging one another and loving one another and ministering to one another and together to others and, and having that love and that fellowship. and uh, all, there's just We go on and on. There's great blessings to being part of God's people, united with God's people. It's terrible to be outside of his people. Thirdly, third aspect of being without Christ is we are strangers to the covenants of promise. So Paul speaks here to God's covenants of promise that he had given by his grace and reaffirmed through history, and in particular the promise to Abraham. So in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, Go from your country, your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you, and those who dishonor you I will curse. <clears throat> and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He goes on to reiterate and ratify that covenant with Abraham. Then reiterate it to his son Isaac, and then to uh, Isaac's son Jacob, renamed Israel. And then to his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and on through history, and then adds the Davidic covenant as a, um, a subset of that, that the, the descendant of Abraham, who would also be a descendant of David, would be on the throne forever, this, this Messiah, this promised seed. That, and that promise even goes back to the garden, that the seed of the woman would come. So there's these, these prom, promises and this covenant that the Gentiles were strangers to, there were individual exceptions. There were those God brought in in his great grace, even some in the line of Christ. But uh, as a whole, they were separate. They didn't know. They didn't understand. But in Christ, can fully participate. In Galatians 3.29, it says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We can come into these promises, but without Christ, we can't. We're strangers to them alienated from them. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached the following. He said, this is still true of all who are outside Christ. Those who are not living in relationship to Christ, they can read their Bible and it does not move them. They can look at these exceeding great and precious promises <clears throat> excuse me, and say, to whom does this apply? What is all this about? They are strangers. They are like people from another country. They do not understand the language. Does the Bible speak to you? Is it intelligible to you? Do you feel it? It is but gibberish and a jargon? Or does it speak to you and speak words that lift you on your feet and make you praise God? Are you a stranger to the covenants of promise? Or do you know that they are speaking to you and that you are a member of the company, that God is addressing you as you read his holy word? What a terrible thing it is to be outside Christ, not in a living relationship to Christ and strangers from the covenants of promise. Excuse me. Fourth aspect of being without Christ is that we have no hope. And that's true. Outside of Christ, 
there is no true hope. All is vain, all is meaningless. As Ecclesiastes said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Temporally, in this life, that's true. Now, temporally, we, we, we end up with temporal hopes that help sustain us because it's hard to live life without hope. But true hope, genuine hope is found in Christ. And even more so, hope for eternity is only in Christ. This is a, rea- a reality that can be suppressed. We keep ourselves busy. And, and our electronics have, have only worsened that tendency. Always be absorbed in some activity, in something, in some attention, diverting things so that we don't stop and think and have to face our God and the reality of eternity and where do we stand and are we right, are we in Christ or not. And so I would urge you, take that time. Make that time. Set things aside from time to time, ideally every day at some point, and think and think with this. The Word of God. Let let God speak to us because the only hope we have of eternity is Christ. It's a horrible thing to have no hope. It's a despairing thing. But it's true when we're without Christ. And I would, I would urge you, if, if, you're without, if you're not in Christ and God brings you the place where you realize there is no hope, that you would remember what I'm saying now. There is one place, one person in whom to find hope, Jesus Christ. And in him, there's hope. Hope, biblically, is looking forward to what is certain but future. And in Christ, every one of his promises is absolutely certain. And some, if you come to Christ, some are immediate, some are now. Some are already being fulfilled now, but all the others will be. There's full hope. There's hope of eternity. It will be fulfilled in Christ. Flee to Christ. Don't despair. When you reach that point of realizing without him you despair, run to him in faith. And I pray that's even today. Come to Christ. Fifthly, without Christ, the fifth aspect of that is that we're without God in the world. Now, of course, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But the unsaved have no relationship with God. They can't experience God's presence. That was true of the Gentiles in Paul's day. It was true of us as believers before we trusted Christ. It's true of you if you're not in Christ. Ralph Venning points out two great miseries that are part of being separated from God. God hides his face from the unsaved, it says in Isaiah 59. What a, what a horrible image. God hides his face from the unsaved. And in Isaiah 1, God does not hear the prayers of the unsaved. Now, he knows they pray. He's omniscient. He knows what they say, but he's not in a relationship to respond like he will to those in Christ who are his children. Like a father, a loving father to his child, he'll, he'll perk up, he'll listen, he'll respond. If you're outside of Christ, you don't have that relationship with God. Without God in the world, 
It is in this fallen, sinful world, under God's wrath and headed to destruction, that the unsaved are without God. Just in our own lives, when we go through difficulties and trials, we're so thankful for the Lord. He's present. He comforts us. He strengthens us. He, he brings us through. He, he fills us with that hope of he, he's going to work it all together for good for, and for his glory. But imagine going through the trials of life without God. You've probably thought that. I've thought that. May that thought motivate us to witness, to share Christ to those who are in that state of being without God in the world. And on the other hand, if we're in Christ, no matter what happens in this world, no matter who turns against us in this world, he's enough. Christ is enough. And he'll, and he'll bring us through. We must remember that before Christ saved us, we had no peace because of our sin. In fact, in the context here, the beginning of chapter 2, it's because of our sin. That, that's why we're in this state. Remember, our plight is our fault. There are other problems in our lives. Other problems caused by other people's sins. And it can include the sin of oppression. As we mentioned earlier, there, there are real issues in that, in that arena. It's just we need to come to the Lord for how do, we, how do we look at that? How do we address it? How do we think about it? What do we do? And the starting point, the starting problem for everyone, is our own sin that separates us from God and from God's people. That's our plight, and we're to remember that plight, and we need to come to Christ, who's the only one who can solve it. Sociology won't solve it. Political action won't solve it. Who gets elected, who redistributes whatever privilege or wealth, none of that's going to solve it. Christ alone solves our plight of our sin that separates us from him and one another. And if we come to Christ, he'll, his, the right way, his way, take care of all the rest. Believer, remember Christ saved us from this plight of separation and worship him for it. Thank him for it. Share him to others because of it. Our second point, remember our peace is Christ who creates unity. In verses 13 to 18, Christ alone is our peace. It's a glorious contrast here. We have this, this heavy verse 12, just filled with this horrid situation we're in, this plight of ours. And then we come to verse 13 and these two glorious words, but now. It's parallel to the first 10 verses where you get to verse 4, but God steps in, he intervenes after we're dead in sin under the wrath of God. And it's, it's similar here. We're estranged, we're separated from him and one another, but now it's different. Why is it different? We've been brought near in Christ Jesus by his blood. It's Christ. Christ makes the difference. Sin separates us, Christ unites us. Remember. The remembering we're called to includes focusing on Christ. Take time to look at Christ, who he is, 
and because of who he is, what he does. Let's read verses 13 and the beginning of 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. And in him we have peace with each other. The word peace appears four times in verses 14 to 18. The Greek word in in general describes harmonious relationships, and in this context, relationships harmonized between God and man through the gospel. Verse 14, Jesus is our peace. He's placed first for emphasis. He himself is our peace. He alone is the one who reconciles us to God and to others. He makes these relationships right again. As our peace... Christ made both groups one. What groups? Believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Separate, hostile, at enmity, he now makes one. And, it says, he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the enmity separating Jews and Gentiles. This this. Allusion points to the metaphorical division between the Jews and the Gentiles. God made the distinction. This is an ethnic distinction that God actually designed. Now, it got abused and misused in sinful ways, but it's actually a distinction he designed. And that's one of the beauties. If he solved this one, he can solve all the others. That's the the hope. This is why the answer is here with Christ and his, and his word. But he had set it up but as an avenue that they would be a people through him, his word, and the Messiah, and the witness to the other nations, and blessing to the other nations would flow. But they had misused it. He gave them dietary laws, and clothing laws, and marriage laws, and, and the ceremonial and sacrificial system, and all of it was to, to point out they were a separate people under the Lord, and to point to the coming Messiah who would be come from among them in God's plan. God intended these things to set his people apart as a witness, but Israel perverted them into pride and isolation and self-glory. They became legalistic with them and judged others by them, and the Gentiles didn't care about them and didn't like being judged, and so there's this this conflict and this uh, enmity between these groups. You know, God has given believers many special blessings. He tells us to be distinct from the world and to live holy lives and do so as part of being a witness of Christ to the world. Let's not make the same mistake. Perverting our great salvation and God's work of sanctification in us as a source of pride or isolation or self-glory or judgment of others. Let's not move into moralism as the gospel, but the gospel as the gospel. Now, don't get me wrong, live holy lives. God wants us to live holy lives to his glory. But it's by his grace, it's by his power, it's humbly, it's wanting others to to know the joy of this salvation and so gladly sharing with them and wanting to bless them and to love them with the love of Christ. That's That's what he's calling us to do, and may we do so. And Jesus, he broke down the wall of hostility separating the, the believing Jew and the believing Gentile. And he can do the same for us in our separations today. In Christ, love each other by grace, not showing sinful partiality. 
How did Christ do it? How did Christ break down the barrier of the dividing wall, the enmity, the hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles? Well, to answer that, I want to point out that the footnote in the New American Standard Bible at the beginning of verse 15, I think is the better translation. Uh, in studying it out, and, and, and particularly the arguments offered by Harold Honer, enmity should be connected to the barrier of the dividing wall. It's, it's, those are the same thing. The barrier and the enmity is that conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles without Christ. And enmity not, should not be connected to the law because the law is never presented as the enemy. The law is presented as good. Psalm 19, Romans 7. Now, in Christ, we're freed from the law, but it was, ne it was never our enemy. It was the misuse of the law that was our enemy. It was, it was viewing the law as we could work our own way by the law to God was, was wrong. But the law itself is good. It's never been the enemy. And then also the verb abolishing can, can mean making inoperative and refers to the law. So verses 14 and the beginning of 15, I'll read this way. For he himself, as Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the enmity, by making inoperative in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances. In his flesh refers to the cross. So Christ, Christ fulfills the law, both in his life, he's, he perfectly obeyed the law of God, and in his sacrificial substitutionary death, he took the penalty due according to the law of God's wrath upon the sins of those who trust Christ. And he, he paid it. He satisfied it. He, so there's no more demands on believers. So he has taken us from under the Mosaic law, and now we're under the law of Christ. That's a wonderful thing. Now, there's some repetition. You know, some of the, like the Ten Commandments, for instance, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament as part of the law of Christ. But it's it's in Christ and he, Him working in us. It's, it's by His grace. It's the Spirit manifesting the fruits of the Spirit by which we obey the law of Christ. We're, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore, neither Jewish believers nor Gentile believers. And, and so don't try to live under the law. Christ ended the enmity, the barrier of the dividing wall, by rendering the law inoperative for believers. And then it gives two purposes why He did that. The first is the end of verse 15, the next in verse 16. So purpose number one, he did so to make one new man. Look at the, the latter part of verse 15. So that, that's purpose, why he, why he did this. In himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. New means fresh in character and quality. It's different. So it's not Jews be Gentiles becoming Jews, nor Jews becoming Gentiles. It's believing Jews and believing Gentiles becoming Christians, Christ followers, disciples of the Lord Jesus. However we want to name it, it's a new thing. It's a new entity that, that he has made. It's a new man. Jesus rendered the law an operative for believers to abolish the enmity to make us one new man in peace. That solves 
the problems. That solves the conflicts. If we will come to Christ and live like it, it's solved. And it, and it will be completely so in glory. And he's calling us to remember so we live more and more like it in his sanctifying process now as his church. Let no enmity divide us from other believers. And, and also not let us stop us from witnessing. We should witness to anybody and everybody. There should be no uh, partiality in who, to whom we witness. Again, at times there may, be, there may be divisions due to being faithful to Christ in truth, but never let enmity be the division. God also gives instructions in his word about what this unity should look like. We can go to places like Romans 12, the latter part of, of Romans 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, we, we keep reading, it speaks of being, showing hospitality and blessing those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those with weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a beautiful description of living without enmity, living in peace with one another in the church. And together, the best we can, as far as it depends on us, with those outside the church, even our enemies. We could go to Ephesians 4. It has similar descriptions uh, going into chapter 5. But let's move on. The, per the, the second purpose of, of Christ making the law an operative for believers so that he would end the enmity between us. Is, is for the purpose of reconciling both believing Jews and believing Gentiles in one body to God. So first purpose, bring us together, one new entity, unity. Second purpose, in that unity, unite us with God. Now normally, it's the reverse order in the Bible. We're made right with God first and then with one another. And in the larger context, that's what happens here. Verses 1 through 10, we're made right with God. Verses 11 to 22 are focusing on, on the community aspect of it. But even in that aspect, together, we're made right with God. We can never get away from that. We need to be right with God, and in ourselves, we're not. And so that's the second purpose. Peace with God, unity with Him. We who deserve His wrath are made at peace. That, that's amazing. That's, that's something we should take time to ponder, to meditate on, we are sinners deserving the wrath of God, but he's made us at peace. Christ has done it, and it's Christ who does it. We, when we think of two, two of us as human beings reconciling, we think of meeting in the middle, right? I'll do some compromising, you do some compromise, we work it out, we, we get reconciled. And, and between each other, there's even guidance in the Bible for some of that to happen. But with us, with God, and even us together, as one body being made right with God, it's Christ doing it all. Christ comes and gets us and reconciles us to God. He does all of it. There's none of us accomplishing any of the reconciliation. 
And at the cross and before his throne, we're together unified, both reconciled in one body. Remember this so we live like it. That's what he's calling us to do. Remember it and live like it. And he reconciles us through the cross, emphasizing again, he accomplished our peace with God through his blood on the cross. By it, the cross, he put to death the enmity. And here the enmity is not the enmity of Jew and Greek, I mean Jew and Gentile. It's, it's the enmity of both with God until Christ steps in and ends it. Praise God. So, verse 14, Christ is our peace. Here in verse 16, 15 and 16, he makes our peace. And then as we move on to verse 17, another reference to peace as well. It begins with and, it links back to verse 14. He is our peace, he made our peace, and he preached peace to those who are near, to those who are far. And we see him preaching this peace in the Gospels and in the book of, of Acts. Let's, let's read verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The church is also to preach, to proclaim peace through the apostles' teaching, through the scriptures. This could be preaching like this, could be teaching, but it can also be just each one of us in our lives sharing the word of God with others, proclaiming this peace, proclaiming that peace is through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. Everyone around us, if they're not in Christ, there's not another way. There's not a, if I'm sincere in my beliefs, then I'll end up okay. That's not what the Bible says. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We are asking people of other beliefs to change their beliefs and come to Christ because he's the only way. Just like we needed to change our beliefs and come to Christ. It's equally open to all, but he's the only way. And proclaim that good news of peace. So whom do we need to proclaim peace to? Who can we think of? And broadly speaking, it's to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Support missions for that purpose. Maybe some of us should go on missions for that purpose. Share with our neighbors for that purpose, our coworkers, our families. And pray for the opportunity to do so. Verse 18, for through him we both have access, our access in one spirit to the Father. Beautiful Trinitarian verse. We have the, the Son, Jesus Christ, the Spirit, and the Father. Through Jesus, in one spirit, we have access to the Father. Through his blood, through his work on the cross, He's made the way. Hebrews 10 speaks of the veil ripping. The way's been opened by what Christ has accomplished. He makes the peace where we can come to God. We are those for whom Christ is our peace. And he wants us to live like it. To draw near to him in his word, in prayer, in worship. Third major point today. Remember our privileges in Christ as his unified church to God's glory. Verse 19 begins, so then. 
Consequently, in light of what we've been seeing now this. And in these closing verses, he's going to give three powerful metaphors of how he unites believers with one another and, and together with himself, with God. The first metaphor, we're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Verse 19 begins, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. We're no longer foreigners to God's people. Whether short-stay foreigners or long-stay resident foreigners, those are the two words there. Either way, that's no longer the case for us with God's people. We're now part of God's people. We're fellow citizens with the saints. Who are the saints? The believers of all time. From, from the very beginning, the first believers before Abraham, through Abraham and God's people, the Israelites, and, and now in the church age, all believers are the saints. And when we believe by God's grace, we're part of that. He has united us as fellow citizens with the saints. The second metaphor, members of God's household, the end of verse 19, and are of God's household. This is speaking of family. We're, the, the Bible uses two images, both of being born again or born from above, made God's children, and that's only believers are, the, are God's children. Or through the image of adoption. He adopts us as his children. And, and both those images bring that, that same reality, that same point. We're of God's household. That, that's amazing. God is the perfect father. We, we all desire family as it should be, right? And none of our families are perfect because we're in a fallen world, but, but where it's good, we, it's just so good, right? Family is a great thing. Well, God's the perfect, God's household is the perfect family. And he makes us part of his family. And so with one another, we're brothers and sisters. And we're to live like it. We're to love one another as brothers and sisters. Be loyal to one another as brothers and sisters. Work together as brothers and sisters for God's glory, following our, our Father. Live like a family as we do. That'll cross ethnic lines. And our, our love for one another, they'll know we're his disciples by our love. It'll be a great witness to God's glory to the world around us. The third image, we're a holy temple in the Lord. In these last three verses, we'll look at the foundation, formation, and function of us as the temple. Verse 20, we find the foundation of the church. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In this flow, he goes from this household, this family, to a building, and it's, and it's going to keep going into, growing into a temple. And so the foundation of it is named as the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. So the apostles are the 12, minus Judas, replaced by Matthias, and then Paul was added as the last for the, the apostle to the Gentiles. The, the prophets are the New Testament prophets. It's not referring to the Old Testament prophets. It's the New Testament prophets. So as God was establishing the church, the canon was still being written. He had prophets in the church that would re God would reveal things to the church they needed to know. And then they died out. That gift died out as the canon was completed. The church, the foundation was laid. The church was established. Now there are some who would argue that in this verse, 
they're the same, that the apostles and prophets are one group, that the apostles were also prophets. And, and Wayne Grudem, many of us know Wayne Grudem through his theology book, which is a great theology book. There's just a few places we disagree, and this is one, at least I disagree. But he argues so that he can also argue there were New Testament prophets that could have errors, and that today that gift is still active, where there could be revelations from God through prophets, but sometimes they can get it wrong. That, that doesn't hold up overall biblically. Prophets biblically are always right, or they're a false prophet. That's what the Bible speaks to. And, and there's other places as far as it dying out, the foundation's laid, and, and then the, the canon takes their place. So that simply doesn't work. And even grammatically here, there are two groups. There's the, there's the apostles and there's the New Testament prophets. And then Jesus himself is the cornerstone of this foundation as prophesied in Isaiah 28, verse 16. And, and the cornerstone in ancient times was very, it was the most essential thing to a building. In our modern times, it becomes ceremonial. We put a, a little facade on a corner of a building with some inscription, right? It's a big ceremony, now we're dedicating it. But in those days, it really was the start of the foundation. Everything had to be aligned to that cornerstone on the foundation and then the building from there. Everything rightly aligned to the cornerstone. Christ is that cornerstone. The apostles and prophets had to be correctly aligned with Christ. Then as God builds the building with believers, every believer rightly connected with Christ and aligned with Christ. How are we rightly aligned? The Spirit using His Word to sanctify us and, and align us as He's building, He's growing this building, this temple. In verse 21, we find the formation of the temple. In whom, Christ, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Being fitted together is, is very, talking about very skillful work. It's not haphazard. It's not throwing stones together. Um, there wasn't mortar in, ancient, in these ancient times, so they would have to fit the stones, make them where they would fit exactly together so that it built, was built sturdily and firmly and fully, um, whatever the building was. And, and so it's a beautiful picture of Christ carefully, individually, taking each one of us as believers and fitting us into his body, into his temple as the church. And then it, it mixes the imagery growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So you've got a building, and now you've got like a plant growing. And it's a beautiful kind of striking mixture of images. The church is a living, growing organism. And the word temple that we're growing into here is one of two words for the temple. The other word not used here is of the whole temple complex. This word is specifically of the holy place and the holy of holies where God chose to dwell, to make his presence manifest and to dwell amongst and amidst his people. And, and that's now us. The church is now where God's presence and residence is. Christ forms the temple by fitting us together, a living temple. And then finally, verse 22, the function of the temple. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So God's glory was in the temple in the Old Testament. In this age, his glory is in his church. He's building us as his temple 
and manifesting His glory in and through us. Wow. In, in 1 Corinthians 6, there's also we're individually, as believers, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here the image is us together, us corporately as the church he's building into this temple where he will dwell in our midst among us and manifest his glory. How does he do that? Sanctifying us, working in us, saving people, sanctifying people, discipling people, us corporately praising him together, um, support, you know, loving one another, ministering to one another, fulfilling the one another's of the New Testament. As we, as we live that way as God's people, which would include eth- different ethnicities all together. It's one family and one building and one temple all fit together for the glory of God. As we do that and we live that way, that glorifies God. And, and Riverbend, may we do so. By the grace of God, may we be such a temple. May we remember, may we remember Christ our peace as his unified church. The plight from which we've come, that he's our peace that he, and he makes us unified with each other in him and, and then exercise, enjoy, appreciate the privileges we have in him as his unified church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful passage of scripture to, to remind us, to help us remember what Christ did and what he accomplished in it for us together, for us as your people, for us as the church. Broadly, your whole church, but also our church, your church here at Riverbend. And may we live like it, Lord. May we remember and may we live it by your power and grace and to your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.